welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from the NRF Big Show in New York City. We want to thank the folks at NRF for hosting us. As usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome, Jason and Scott Show listeners. We are excited to have the Chief Retail Innovation Officer for Deloitte, Casey Lobaugh, with us today. Casey has over 20 years of retail and e-commerce experience. Welcome to the show, Casey. Uh, thank you. It's great being here. I'm a longtime listener, and I'm thrilled to, to join you guys. Uh, it's our pleasure to have you. And let me start by apologizing to your family, who I understand have been forced to listen to a few episodes. Yeah, my, my family. I've got two kids, a 9- and 10-year-old, uh, actually 10- and 11-year-old now. They're going to kill me for, for getting their ages wrong. But uh, they get to listen. My son's a hockey player, so we're on the road a lot. Uh, and so they get to listen to the Scott, uh, to, to the Jason and Scott show on our on our cross-country car trips. I'm sure that they, if they were here today, they'd be seeking you guys' autographs. <laughs> Don't all hockey games start at 6 a.m.? So all the hockey parents I know, by like 3 o'clock, they have the droopy circles under their eyes. So are you out traveling around at 4 a.m. listening to the Jason Scott Show? We are. We are. I live in Kansas City, so we spend a lot of time on the road to St. Louis. Uh, hockey's big there, so we listen to it. Uh, that actually explains the droopy eyes and the red eyes that I've got all the time. Touche, uh, <laughs> touche. Cool. Well, you know, we, we love having you on here. Um, we've known you for quite a while, but let, for the listeners, let's go through a little bit of your background. Sure. Um, you know, feel free to start back at school and how you got into this fun industry we call retail and uh, kind of summary of what you've done at Deloitte. Uh, sure. Well, 20, 20 years, so a long time. So um, I've been with Deloitte in Kansas City the entire time. I was in business school and uh, business school, 95, you know, 96, sort of looking for an internship out of business school. Uh, and a company came to campus called Deloitte. Uh, I honestly didn't know who they were at the time, um, but it seemed like a kind of a cool, cool job. Um, and at the time I was on campus, was taking all of my courses. I was developing HTML pages, all the things you were doing in 95, sort of dialing in, you know, you guys remember the dial in. Um, and they offered me a job. And at the time I had a, there was a, a mentor of mine who was a retail uh, practitioner, uh, and he took me with him on his first project, or on my first project. And we went, we went and worked, and we custom built a labor scheduling system in Visual Basic 3.0. I still remember it uh, today. And that was my first entry into retail. And so for me, uh, at the time, I, I, I knew I wanted to do this thing called e-commerce. Didn't know what it was, how to do it, but retail seemed like a pretty cool place to start, and that was sort of the extent of it. Now, funny story, I remember sitting down with the managing director in Kansas City in 1996, and I said to him, hey, I want to do e-commerce. And he said, great, what is that? He had no clue what it was. And then he proceeded to tell me that Deloitte doesn't do that work. And, uh, and then they sent me off to go do a PeopleSoft implementation. Um, but over the course of my career, you know, I worked in retail and we slowly began, uh, to do the work that I wanted to do. We started working in e-commerce, started helping some of the biggest brands, you know, implement and scale their e-commerce businesses. Uh, and then over time, I just really built a whole business around that. Now, if you're familiar now, we now have, uh, Deloitte Digital, which is a multi-billion dollar business that we've now built up around the whole digital space. And so I, I like to tell that story now because I think Deloitte's been a phenomenal place for me to build the kind of career that I wanted in the space that I wanted, even though at the time we really didn't do this kind of work. Cool. If we flash forward to today, your official title is Chief Retail Innovation of 
innovation officer. What, what's that entail and like how big is your team and tell us a little bit like the, the day-to-day life of, of what you do. Yeah, it's interesting because at Deloitte, I wear multiple hats. So I've got my client hat where I've got my key client that I spend the majority of my time at. Of course, we work across uh, a lot of different clients too from time to time, depending on what the need is. But relative to the chief retail innovation officer hat, what I really am tasked with is thinking about the future of the business. So I've spent a lot of time sort of studying how it's evolved. And so I spent a lot of time sort of looking at the data and trying to figure out what does this tell us? How are things playing themselves out? What's our best guess at how things play themselves out? How, we do, how do we do research that helps us to have unique understanding about how things play out? And then how do we help our clients do the things they need to evolve at the pace that, that the industry is evolving in? That's really how I spend my time. Cool. So that's things like maybe 10 years ago, you would say, hey, this mobile thing is going to be big. We need to spin up a practice area here yeah. or something like that. Yeah, it's a perfect example. There are a couple of things that I've done along the way that really probably pertain here. So the, the first thing I had done... Uh, Um, And this was roughly around 2007. I took on a big research piece at the time that was centered on what we were calling multi-channel. And the whole idea was, uh, in fact, our title, our, our piece was called the tidal wave. Are you ready for the coming tidal wave of the multi-channel impact? And we really looked deeply at the operational impact of what happens when the channels begin to really come together. So I like to look at that because that was really, um, for me, it was uh, really formative in terms of how I started to drive the industry and think differently. So if you think 2007, talking about you know what we'll call omni-channel now was, was a pretty good start. Uh, around 2010, I did my next piece that really helped to, to drive our practice in a new direction and helped our clients. And that's where we, we did our first, what we call the digital divide. And the digital divide really looked closely at how consumers were using mobile devices uh, in the context of the store. So what we believed at the time, we still believe this, in fact, we still do this piece of research, was that the vast majority of retailers were not thinking about mobile in particular correctly. By looking at mobile through the lens of mobile sales, they were dramatically underplaying the impact that mobile would have. And I remember at the time, one of the executives I I sat down with um, had said to me, he said, look, for us, e-commerce is only 7% of our business and mobile is less than 1% of that. So why would we invest in mobile? And to me, that was the aha moment that said, we're thinking about it wrong. So we set out to measure how mobile was impacting the in-store sale. And clearly what we found, and probably well known now, is is the influence that mobile and mobile connectivity was having on conversion rate, average order size, and things like that in the store. And that's when we started publishing that research. So both of those pieces of research are just two examples about at a point in time where we were helping the market and helping our own practice sort of launch into the next phase of, of what we saw happening in retail. And of course, for us... The digital divide research helped us launch our digital Deloitte digital practice. In fact, we went out and made a major acquisition. At the time, we acquired a, a firm by the name of Ubermind, which was a major mobile application developer at the time. And that became the nucleus of us forming Deloitte Digital. So that research not only helped our clients, it actually helped us to position for the services that we knew our clients would need in the coming, uh, coming years. And you do a fair amount of primary research in the practice. So I got that, that digital Correct. divide study, I know, gets quoted a ton. Uh, and I want to say, like, the number I see quoted out of it most often is not specific to mobile, is just the digital influence sales. And I want to say it's something like 
fifty four percent. And yeah, so, yeah, that's 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 right. That's down north of that, though. Nice. Right? So if you if you sort of just stop and think about that and go, okay, that's and by the way, that number is only of in store sales. So it's sixty four percent of in store sales are being influenced by digital in some way, shape, or form. So if you take digital sales plus digitally influenced in store sales. We're now at a point where it's the the vast majority of sales, full stop. And that actually, for me, that fuels this argument that says digital isn't a separate business. It's not a business unit. It's not a channel. It's fundamental to retail. So I, I still believe retailers need to think about it differently, organize differently around it, and really think about how to fuel the business in different ways. Then we're still, you know, we're still sort of thinking channel orientation. Many retailers have connected the channels, but they haven't fully integrated it into the value proposition. I, I, I still believe that's a major opportunity for retailers. Yep. Do you Are you starting to see any signs that retailers are starting to reorganize? Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's some. Um, and, it, you know, you usually see some of the leaders. We saw some of the leaders around Omnichannel and some of the leaders uh, around sort of how to think organizationally. So we see organizations that have started to eliminate the channel organizations. We've seen merchandising as a major area where we once had two merchant organizations and now we've sort of combined that. The second area we're starting to see uh, a good bit of work around is marketing. I had a digital marketing team and I had a traditional marketing team. Yeah. Logically, there's just a marketing team that uses a whole array of uh, tools and, and medium uh, uh, media to go after their, their client base. So we're certainly seeing that. And in some cases, we're actually seeing the P&L around the, the online channel sort of going away and sort of getting integrated in. And I think those are all positive steps. Now, I'm not sure that those steps in and of themselves are enough to overcome the disruption we see in the industry for you know, many of the brands that are sort of feeling the most pain. But I think there are certainly steps in the right direction. We certainly hope so. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, you did some new research specific to holiday this year. Yeah, well, so we're doing this. Uh, we're not publishing this, but we're doing this on behalf of our clients, and we're certainly taking this back to our clients. So we could be getting some cool secret. Yeah, this, this, is, see, this is all secret. Yeah. Exclusive. Yeah. This is all secrets, yeah. right? Yeah. I'd um, like to thank all of Casey's clients for paying for this research. <laughs> no, just to be clear, <laughs> just to be clear, this is something we're doing on behalf of our clients. Um, yeah, you know, this is my, like, I have this mantra, which is, is this, is that whatever you read in the headlines relative to retail, I start from the perspective of it's wrong. And look, it may not be wrong, and it's certainly not always wrong or always completely wrong, but I always start there because over my career, uh, too often, you know, we try and simplify things in the press and, you know, you, you like the headline, but when you dig deeper, what we discover, um, is that there are things going on that are not uh, in line with the simplistic headlines that you'll get, you know, from whatever media outlet that you go to. Um, so, for example, if you looked at Holiday, it's it's really interesting, and this is where you know we did a lot of research around disruption. We really believe the industry is being disrupted in ways that are not fully understood by everybody. Um, but if you just look at Holiday. Look, we know that we believe that holiday, when it's all said and done, will have been up 4%. So that's a pretty darn good holiday. Like you got to go back quite a while for us to have seen a holiday with 4% growth rate. So, you know, good. We should be happy as an industry. However, if you read the press and you see some of the results that are coming out, there's not happiness to go around here, right? So the big question is, well, what, what really is going on? Now, of course, we do know that online has grown. Uh, we believe it uh, when it's all said and done will have grown about 12%. Um, and that's good. And that's sort of in line with what everybody expected it uh, to be in line with. But the headlines lead us to believe that 
online was the only growth engine that, that, uh, in fact, I've heard this a lot, like, um, store sales are uh, like they're going online. Store sales are going online. But when you look at the data relative to stores, you actually say, wait, that's not true. Stores increased. Our number is 1.6%. So we believe, uh, we believe that store sales increased 1.6%. We think that's roughly $12 billion. So stores didn't shrink. They grew. Now, they may not have grown as robustly as online grew, but they grew. But when and you begin, grew from a much bigger number. Yeah, it grew from a much bigger number. And so, in fact, what we, what we um, believe happened is the, the, if you looked in just pure dollars, the growth online and the growth in stores was roughly equivalent. So let's call it equal growth, even though the percentage point is much smaller uh, re- relative to your point. Um, so when we talk about the headlines that say this is all going online, this is the big online player is doing all this damage, you have to look at it and go, wait a minute, no. Stores grew. Um, so if your stores didn't grow, you've got a, a question that you've got to address is why, why didn't I partake in this 1.6% growth? Where did this 12 billion go? Not only that, but if your number is negative and some of them, you know, that have already come out and announced, they're, they're announcing negative numbers. And by the way, if you strip out the e-commerce number, the store number that they've announced is actually even more pronounced negative. You, you have to ask the question, well, where's that going? Where's the store sale going if it's not going online? Who's capturing? Who's winning? Who's losing? And why? And so that's what we've really done is tried to look at the data. What does it tell us? Look deeply at who's winning and losing to help our clients sort of sort through this. Because again, this headline that says, oh, this is all online or it's all the big online player um, just simply isn't true in, you know, in and of itself. So just to reconcile that, so $50 billion is for the fourth quarter or just holiday? And like, it's a holiday. It's a holiday, holiday period, yeah. And then um, so are you saying that the number that's out there is four and you guys think it's 1.6 or is the 1.6 when you take out online out of that's, four? That's right. Sorry. Uh, just to be clear. So yeah. four is overall retail. Yep. Online grew 12%. Uh, the store only sales grew 1.6%. Okay. I thought that was just, I just want to clarify. Yeah. That and yep. so the store only sale, when we do the math, we come up to about 12 billion of incremental store sales, right? And so that would be over the holiday period. Okay. Now, you know, it, when you look at this, you have to sort of go, well, we're, we're still sort of seeing how this all plays itself out and we're using the data and the early insights that we can, um, you know, that, that have started to, to, to come online already. Cool. So other than, you know, kind of contra headline, any other interesting trends in the holiday that you guys saw? Yeah, certainly um, certain categories that outperformed. You know, we believe when it's all said and done, we'll find that appliances outperformed. We believe shoes, uh, uh, clearly those direct-to-consumer brands that do more athleisure wear, you know, perform pretty well. Um, and so you got to look at the certain categories that, that you know, performed well. By the way, I, I think that's one of the things retailers have to become better at is finding opportunities and quickly moving in and out of those opportunities, right? One year where you say appliances is going to be hot this year, it may not be hot next year. How how do you, you know, how do you adapt your merchandise, your assortment strategy to find opportunities and move in and out of those opportunities in a way that a a traditional retailer struggles to do? We actually think that's one of the opportunities. So uh, one of the things that I imagine uh, is fun in your job is you have a pretty diverse portfolio of retailers. You get to have lots of different conversations with different clients. Are there some common themes that you're starting to see emerge? Like, are there particular problems that that you think retailers are starting to think about this year that they maybe didn't focus on as much in the last couple of years? Yeah, yeah, there is. And in fact, I'll, I'll call one out that I actually believe is a bit flawed. 
Okay, um, and that's, that's I didn't say they were right. Yeah, that's sure. right. That's right. So <laughs> that has to do with the cost structure. So if you think traditionally in retail, when sales are down, you know, there's a playbook that you run. And that playbook is to cut costs, to get in line with your new sales number until the market returns, and then we kind of come back. But what's interesting is when the market is, there's no market to come back. We're up 4%, right? So what happens when you miss numbers in a strong market and then you cut costs? We actually believe that's the wrong playbook, right? Because uh, we call it sort of recasting instead of retrenching. Okay, there's a difference between recasting, meaning there's a reason that you lost and it isn't that, that the economy was weak. It's that your value proposition is not evolving with the consumer. Um, when we cut costs and we just sort of go across the board, and that's the traditional playbook, just cut costs, right? What we're failing to do is invest in the strategic areas that will allow us to reposition with that, with that client. So what I'm fearful of right now is I see um, a wave of, uh, you know, I'll call it enterprise cost reduction going on. And we've seen this in the past. The problem is the situation that we're sitting in is not like anything we've seen in the past. And so I'm worried that running the old playbook, right, in in a different situation actually leaves you in a much weaker position, not in a stronger position. Feels like it could be a death spiral. You know, you kind of, you know, you can't cut your way to prosperity. So that's right. That's exactly right. And so in a time when we're just waiting for the market to return, we're going to have our share, but we're losing share. Like when you're losing share, that's different than losing sales in a market that's contracting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How about, um, do you think Omnichannel is the silver bullet for a lot of this stuff for, for a lot of these folks? I, I don't. Uh, of course, I spend a lot of time preaching Omnichannel, and I would still preach Omnichannel, by the way. Done a ton of work in Omnichannel throughout the years. And one of the things that I always like to talk about is that um, is a secret. The secret is that omnichannel, the way it's been executed, was always held up as this customer strategy. My view is it never was a customer strategy. It was an inventory optimization strategy. When you really look at how the vast majority of customer, our clients have implemented omnichannel, it really has to do with inventory productivity. So I've got inventory in one place. I've got demand in another place. How do I really match those to create a more productive inventory? So that's, you know, you capture sales that you wouldn't have captured when you didn't have the right product in the right place. But we also turn inventory and make it more productive. We've done the business case many, many times. And I've seen the business case is almost always there. The problem is, if you look at it now, is the business case isn't enough. So there's deterioration of the business that's happening at a rate that exceeds the value and the benefits that Omnichannel, in the context of inventory productivity, was able to make up for. So I worry, you know, like this happens from time to time, it happens probably consistently in our industry, is the big buzzword comes up. Everybody latches onto the big buzzword. The truth is Omnichannel can and should mean hundreds of different things, but it gets dumbed down gets them down to a set of initiatives that everybody could go, oh, you got to do BOPUS. You've got to do this, you know, that, you know, there's this list. Everybody says, we got to go do these tactics. They go do the tactics and they wonder why, well, why wasn't Omnichannel the savior? So using the term Omnichannel to me in the market has sort of gotten dumbed down to this inventory play and that hasn't been enough. So I don't believe that is the silver bullet. I do believe the silver bullet is thinking deeply about what the customer values and figuring out how your value proposition has to evolve. Now, somebody might say, well, it wasn't that always what we did. The problem was, is the value proposition that customers valued wasn't changing at the same pace that it's changing now. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's changing at that pace is because of all the, comp- the flood of competition to the market. You've heard me talk before about barriers to entry come down 
There's a flood of options, and it's that flood of options that fuels the consumer in trying uh, and advancing their own view of what matters to them, right? And so that's we're in that. That's the new world that we're in. This advancing value proposition that we've got to sort of figure out how to stay in tune with and evolve. Yeah, and you guys have been real early on um, the whole CX is kind of the new marketing kind of a thing. Um, is that is that a different group that kind of did that, and you guys digest that into retail or? You know, tell tell us a little bit more about that. We had, you know, just for context, we had um, the new chief experience officer from Bonobos was on the show earlier. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. You're actually seeing titles around that now to elevate the importance of customer experience. Yeah, yeah. So we we absolutely believe in that. And that's sort of rooted in this idea of what even matters to the customer. Mm -hmm. We look at it in retail specifically. You look back over the last several years and you look at the initiatives that companies pursued. And I I mentioned Bopus earlier. We did a study on our last digital divide and found for many categories, Bopus doesn't even matter to the customer. So why were we as an industry so rapidly pursuing something that only mattered to certain categories? Because we didn't know, right? And that's actually a flaw in how you know, the industry thinks. So this idea around the customer experience, what really matters to the customer? I had a, a meeting just this morning with one of my colleagues who's leading that effort up. So we're a large enough organization. We have this luxury of having you know, represent, uh, representation across many, many different industries. So what we have this tendency to do, and, and I like the way the model works, is we'll have a deep discipline like CX and recognize that that's not a retail discipline. It's a cross-industry discipline. So we'll allow our deep disciplinary uh, you know, folks sort of go deep into that. And then we'll figure out how, how does that apply? How is it different? How is it nuanced as we apply it into retail? And so I spent this morning with our, our colleague who's doing that, looking deeply at it in retail. And it's a good debate sort of to get into is to, to what extent does customer experience matter and where? Yeah, because we actually don't believe it matters necessarily to the same degree across all categories, mm-hmm. and that's the hard part is to to figure out when it matters, how it matters, um, how do you interpret it for that category, and then which categories might you say, look, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. So if Bopus isn't important, what is? Is it just price, price and shipping? That's kind of it. It comes back to sort of categories, right? Um, And you guys may have seen some of the research we did. We took a a whole host of retailers and we put them across a two-by-two. Now, of course, 20 years as a consultant, of course I'm going to put it across a two-by-two, right? Everything's a (laughs) two-by-two. I'm imagining that the two-by-two is emblazoned on on all your whiteboards. That's right. We just imprint it because that's the way we we train people to think this way. Um, But but kidding aside, we sort of looked at the the market and said two dimensions. We looked at it and the first dimension was product exclusivity. To what extent do you as a retailer offer product that you can get nowhere else? Um, and we plotted retailers along that spectrum from I sell commodities, you can get a lot of different places to I'm absolutely exclusive. And the other axis was experience. How, how commoditized is your experience versus how exclusive and how value add is your experience? Um, plotted them all out. And what we found was that the, the performance across those quadrants isn't even close to being, uh, you know, similar. If you're in the top right, we have products and experiences that are highly differentiated. You're killing it. Uh, in fact, the Kager of the last five years is like a 12% Kager. If you're in the bottom left quadrant, that's actually where you're in trouble. You know, I sell Death commodity quadrant. products in a commodity-like experience. And I'd say in that quadrant, price matters because what else are you competing on? I've got things you can buy thousands of other places and I, I'm making it available to you, right? Yeah. Uh, so... 
to your question about what is it just price? Well, it depends. Yeah, that's the consultant answer in me too, right? Yep. Look, if, if you're a, a high end exclusive product vertically integrated retailer, I'm telling you price is not your issue, mm-hmm. right? If you're a big mass retailer that sells a ton of commodities in a big building, uh, price probably is much more important to you. So that, I think therein lies, we, we try and think about retail too often as this big monolithic thing. And, and of course it's not. And that's why it's so fabulous is because every time we convince ourselves that there's some new competitor who's going to dominate, which we've convinced ourselves of that in the past. There was the 80s, the, you know, the, the big, uh, big retailer effect that happened then. And of course, we're now in that with, with an online retailer that we sort of look the same way. We always look at it and go, look, over time, competition always proves out there's many different ways to compete for the consumer. But when the consumer begins to change, you have to change with them. You have to recognize when that's changing. I feel like when uh, e-commerce first took off, like there are all these predictors, you know, e-commerce is going to put retail out of business. I, I think uh, Mark Andreessen, you know, famously predicted that, that brick-and-mortar retail is dead. Um, look, on the marketplace, there's a huge online uh, pure play that's doing well, but they're really the only big player that's pure play and the, the the rest of the players are all omni-channel retailers do you feel like there's some intrinsic advantages that those omni-channel retailers have to be competitive sure sure there, there's an intrins- intrinsic value in their brand right uh, in many ways some of these brands are phenomenal with a ton of heritage to them um you know there, there are opportunities with the store i think our retailers convince themselves too much that hey our strategic difference is our store i'm not sure that the consumer necessarily always buys that but i think there still is opportunity i think the brands that the traditional retailers bring are so powerful. They have such a huge opportunity to think about how do I continue to capitalize on the brand in more in different ways. So I, I do agree with that, that, that there's, there's opportunity to think different. Let me talk just a minute. I've got a ton of data that says, well, it's a highly competitive battle, but I wouldn't put it through those simplistic lens. Uh, in fact, if you looked at uh, the vast majority of brick and mortar retailers and you looked at how fast they've been growing online, they've been growing at least as fast, if not faster than online is growing itself, meaning they're actually stealing share in many cases in the online, you know, in the online world. So in some ways you could argue, but they're not losing online. They're actually winning online because they're outperforming the market. Now, the problem is, is that they've got the store base in many cases, at least a, par- a portion of it is unhealthy and is bleeding at such a rate that their healthy, their, their health online actually isn't making up for it. But I think we try and uh, simplify and call this bricks and mortar versus online when in fact, many of the bricks and mortar companies, you know, relative to when and where they started are actually doing quite well online. They're they, they started making significant investments probably considerably later, and therefore they still are underpenetrated relative to the big online pure play. Yeah, it, it is interesting. Uh, I, I have a saying I, I probably use too much, but averages are where insights go to die. Right, right. Um, and it, I mean, it, it's playing across a lot of these themes that like you talk about how a retailer is doing on average and it totally masks that online versus offline performance or it masks those retailers that are, did really well this holiday from the retailers that out underperformed the market this, That's this right. holiday and all those sorts so of things. So it's always the second click or the third click down that starts to get really interesting about what's going on out there. Yeah, I agree with that. 
so I had an insight a couple weeks ago that made me think of you. Um, I, I always oh want to ask. Here we go. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I've seen some great presentations from you, uh, and I know you're a big advocate of Moore's law and like high-level premise. Uh, some of these disruptions happen at an exponential rate, and we're kind of hardwired to think in a linear rate. And so, man, there's lots of opportunity to mess up when we, we estimate linearly and things are happening exponentially. Uh, so I have that in the back of my mind when I'm at CES last month uh, or last week, and uh, all the PC manufacturers are saying, we finally hit the end of Moore's Law. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and I, I'm not sure from a transistor standpoint that that's actually true, but the, there was just a lot of talk that, like, shoot, the, the PCs, like, you know, we're, we're having trouble, like, selling new PCs because they're exponentially faster than the old PCs and things. So I, it started, it made me question for the first time, like, will we see the end of Moore's Law? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And of course, none of us, none of us know. And I, look, I'm constantly sort of thinking about it and arguing. Um, you know, th- th- there is one, one aspect. Somebody said once, I can't remember who said this, that we tend to, to overestimate, uh, you know, we overestimate the short run and underestimate the long run. And I think about that a lot because you mentioned earlier people writing books and things that, that how e-commerce was going to put retail out of business in 1995, 1996. You know, well, in fact, over the last 20 years, there's been tons of opportunity. Uh, in fact, the big off-price retailer, you know, really, if you think about the, the story of what they've done over the last 20 years, not digital whatsoever has been just a phenomenal story. Now, that doesn't mean I don't believe in the long run that uh, there will be continued disruption, but I think we, we lose sight of the opportunity that happens in the short run. And relative to your question about advancement of Moore's Law and whether or not you ever hit the end of that, look... I'm really not the expert that knows whether or not we hit. The, I'm constantly asking myself that says, if we don't hit the end, here's what it means. And can I even get my head around that? That's hard to get your head around. But um, I think what uh, I, I would imagine, like what the argument might be is, look, what we're talking about is, is jumping from transistors to the next level of technology. We jump. Uh, and if you talk to people who are sort of thinking about computing and the next generation of computing, you might go, look, I'm not sure that PCs make that leap sure. into the next generation of computing. And maybe there's a limitation that has to do with, with the technology they have in place. But that actually doesn't stop the the path of computing power right we're talking about quantum computing now and you're like yes the pc transistor will not do quantum computing but the the moore's law is not vacuum tubes and it's not transistors it's computing power that's what we're and we should for listeners we pro- should probably state moore's law it's computing power will double every three years Sorry. 18 months 18 months yeah, yeah. okay yeah. yeah so price performance yeah so it could be computing power or the price uh price event. We were talking on another show that a lot of these machine learning things are very floating point heavy. So maybe a lot of this flips from kind of the traditional CPU where it's kind of unburdened right now. I think CPUs just sit there twiddling their thumbs most of the time and it switches over to the GPU because... um, you know that that's where you can get a lot of this natural language. A lot of these innovations are coming from these G- GPUs, which which are much better at training. And um, yeah, I think those have a lot of room to run on the transistor counts and some of the things there. And maybe you can even do like machine learning on a chip or something. I don't know what all that looks like, but maybe that's where you know the the computing needs to start doubling for us to have those big breakthroughs again. That's right. That's a good way to think about it. But if if you buy any of this, if you if you study Moore's law and you, you sort of just think about what it means doubling price performance. Um, um, it leaves me with this perspective is that if you believe that retail has been disrupted, given where we're at today, 
you ain't seen nothing yet, right? That's what it leaves me with this perspective. Because when you see the things that are on the horizon, you're talking about CES and talking about the voice recognition that was on display there. And you just think about, um, you know, my, my kids got the, the Vive headset you know, for, for holiday, you know, virtual reality. You, nice. You, Are you the cool father on your block? Because that's oh, yeah. a premium Christmas yeah. gift. Yeah, yeah I, I always like to say, yeah, they got the vibe, right? <laughs> right. Yes, yeah. uh, that was like, yes. Um, did they also get new golf clubs? Uh, <laughs> they did yeah. not. Did I have a turn? <laughs> yeah. no. shut, shut up, Go kids. I'm still trying to make yeah. it work. Go to bed, yeah. Timmy. <laughs> uh, but if you, if you just believe those things have, uh, you know, more disruptive force than what we've seen, if you think about where we're setting today, Technology has disrupted not just e-commerce and not just mobile. Uh, yeah, everything all the way down to XML technologies have have uh, impacted the way retail happens and how the business model plays itself out. So I, I, I like to say often that the the disruption we're seeing today are from the first generation internet technologies that just have taken this long to sort of begin to really play themselves out. If you look at 3D printing or you look at uh, you know computing power, you look at voice recognition, uh, artificial intelligence. You know, if you believe any of those things, just for a minute. Uh, then what that tells us is the disruption that is coming to retail will make what we've seen over the last 20 years seem minuscule. Now, the big question, I think, though, will be, okay, but when? How, like, 20 years for for Internet technologies to really have the kind of impact we're starting to see now? When do we, like, when? Is it another 20 years? Is it 10 years? Is it five years? Is it two years? Because if you're setting strategy, that actually causes you know, very different investment profiles depending on when and how those things play themselves out. So that's the, that's the big question. I don't know the answer to that question, but we're, we're watching that closely. And that's my job to think about, okay, how does that impact retail and what does that cause us to tell our clients? Cool. Yeah, that uh, is fascinating because we're starting to see some signs of some retailers that are acting like they're at the end of digital disruption, right? Like, so you've, you've seen retailers hire these like, chief digital officers to help instill like you know more more um digital uh savvy into the organizations and now in a number of organizations we've seen those guys retire or leave and instead of replacing them they're like spreading the the, those responsibilities back to the core functions um and it and you talk to some of those retailers and they're like oh yeah well we've we've got all the digital stuff we've got the website check we've got mobile check we've got these these three omni-channel experiences check and like i just think those retailers are crazy i think we're we're like barely starting the digital disruption rather than finishing it and i want to say jack ma had a quote a couple weeks ago where he's like this is going to be a 60-year journey just talking about retail being disrupted by digital yeah yeah so i completely agree with that i had a a cfo who said to me i i I found this i I love these comments i pick up because they help me sort of think about how uh our you know our clients are are thinking and he said to me he said you know traditionally we spent one percent of our revenue on technology you know that number um and we went through this omni-channel thing and for a period of time we ramped it up to three percent um but we're done with that now so it's time to go back to one percent now right (laughs) right i was like i I looked at him kind of like uh you know dogs well, he, watching TV kind of like are, are you what <laughs> yeah. he, he had a new ERP system he wanted to budget for. right that that's no doubt exactly what was going on there but it's that kind of thinking that that misses like if you if you believe that what that tells me is you don't believe Moore's law you don't believe in the disruptive nature of technology you believe you know when the next thing the next mobile thing comes up we'll yeah we'll we'll do that then but until then we're going to get back to our knitting 
And it's we I, we just don't fundamentally don't believe that's the case. Yeah. So bringing it back to the current time, um, we debate a lot on on the whole mobile topic, uh, where you know there's this conversion gap. Uh, have you ever pontificated on that? And what what do you think is the cause of the conversion gap? Should we care? Do, will we ever close it? We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so a couple of things. First of all, I, I don't think that we really measure the conversion gap correctly, right? What we're measuring is whether or not you press the buy button on the device. What, what, and I say we as an industry, what we don't measure is whether or not you press the buy button somewhere, even if it's in store. That's what our digital divide study really sort of went deep into. So I start there. Um, you know, f- from there, I kind of think about, like, I think about mobile for retail. And this is my line of thinking. You have to play along with me because it's kind of still in the works here. If, if you looked at, I had, a, I had another client who said, look, we did mobile and it didn't work, right? Okay. And he said, we're not sure that it works for our brand, our customer. Not many people downloaded it. Once they did download it, not many people used it. Once they did use it, not many people kept it on their phone. They deleted it. So we're not sure they want it. I, of course, then said, well, have you thought that maybe you didn't build the right thing, right? Maybe... Maybe you didn't give them what they wanted. And so I started thinking about that conversation. And, and this is the line of thinking I went down. It's like, look, we know that people use mobile, right? You can go, if I listed the top 100 mobile applications that are used, and I ranked them by most downloaded, most used, most engaged, you know, um, and sorted them and said, what's the DNA of those mobile apps? Okay. I, yeah, so we'd come up with a with a viewpoint. What I was, what was that? I'm tracking you. Yes. I'm so we, 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 we <laughs> you said come along on the journey. I'm along. <laughs> I agree with you so far. We'd come up with a viewpoint of there's a set of DNA that those have, and I actually believe that you'd find there's things like content and there's things like community, and you'd find uh, in, information that allows the consumer uh, or the user of the application to engage and build and participate. And if you look at what retailers do, what we generally find would be they build functionality they want you to use. Which is a very, uh, that's like, that's a light years different between what I just said the top, like, mobile applications do. They say, well, I want you to buy. I want you to search. I want you to scan for. And I don't think retailers have done enough to say, well, first of all, what do people do with their mobile devices? What do they want to do? What does good look like? How do I measure myself the right way? Um, and then how do I think about my customer and what they, how do I put that through my brand lens? I had a, uh, client came to me and said, we'd like Deloitte Digital to build a mobile app for us. I said, great, we're in that business. Um, and I said, uh, they said, we'll send you the spreadsheet of requirements. I said, oh, you've already got the requirement. Oh, that's interesting. And I said, okay, yeah, send that along. And I said, by, by the way, how did you come up with the requirements? They said, oh, well, we just looked at com- competitor A and competitor B, competitor C, and saw all the things they did and figured out what we liked of what they did and put that into our spreadsheet. And my response was, well, competitor A's mobile app doesn't work. Nobody downloads it. Doesn't Competitor B's not the right. They, like Nobody else has figured this out. So sort of looking at all your competitors and sort of adding the functionality you want people to... I just sort of fundamentally believe that the way our uh, way the retail set, and this is generalization, is sort of thinking about you know mobile applications and how to use and how to build is out of alignment with what the data would tell us. So... I haven't tested that. I haven't built out the model that sort of builds upon that. But that's right. I believe there's this gap that exists between what retailers do and what customers want them to do. I'll call that the digital divide. How about that? You should do some sort of I do a research on that. that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That'd be perfect. <laughs> Uh, another topic we talk about on the show an awful lot, Scott's favorite word is mulligan. And I feel like whenever he says it, he's like aiming it at me. And uh, like, you know, there's like 
particularly this quarter, there's been a lot of doom and gloom around mall-based retailers closing stores. And, you know, there's some research that, that there's a certain percentage of the malls in the U.S. that are, like, you know, in great jeopardy from well, you, you low tenancy. You see an invoice, you have to say, Mulligan. Mulligan. I'll, I'll add the, the audio plug. I like it. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so, what's, uh, do you have a POV or Mall's Dead? Well, I'd have to say this holiday, I personally never attended the mall once during my holiday shopping, but I certainly am not. Uh, the, the, you can't the, get the, 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 the mall. <laughs> right, right. Um, I have uh, I do mall walking on Saturday mornings. Would you Would you care to join me? I desperately need to. <laughs> yes. Uh, so look, we, when you look at when we look at data relative to malls, we actually discover there's a whole lot of malls that are extremely healthy. Um, now, on the other end of the spectrum, there's a whole bunch of malls that are very unhealthy. Uh, so in some ways, you know, again, you said when we, when we speak about averages, it's not good. Uh, you know, our view is no, malls aren't dead. In fact, malls can be and are very productive. Uh, retail, you know, is very successful, you know, in certain malls. Uh, there's an evolution occurring. Uh, lifestyle malls, you know, are, are clearly displacing you know, the old traditional enclosed malls. Um, so I look at it more as an evolution, uh, uh, you know, of, of the mall sort of portfolio. Now that said, you know, there was a day where the value proposition of a mall was we were the place, one place you could go and you could access all these brands. We were the place with stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do believe, I mentioned this earlier, that there's a change in the value proposition, right? Um, you know, the value proposition of being the big place with all the brands and all the stuff is not worth to the consumer what it once was. I'm not saying it's not worth, you know, not worth something. It's just, there's a, there's a, um, deterioration of that value proposition. And so you can't miss that. You can't miss that. That said, I still believe malls are good and healthy and can be very productive, but it's the right malls. And if you dig it again, double click once, twice down into it, you discover that. How many, so is it half the malls are good and half are bad, or do you want to pontificate on a on number? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I've got uh, the, the half are good or half are bad, because I, I think good or bad are probably two s- simplistic absolutes, right? Yeah, okay. It's probably this <laughs> sliding scale of you got some that are extremely, you know, that killed it this holiday, and you got some that were, were down significant double-digit numbers. Yeah. In between, you've got some that were up one and some were some were we're down one, right? So there's there's a bit of natural um, portfolio cleansing that's going. On. I think a lot of people are getting worked up about the number of stores that are closing and you know these sort of announcements. But in some ways, if you look deeply at the stores that are getting closed, you know many of those simply are not healthy stores, right? So there's some cleaning that needs to occur, uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's an evolution of the industry and evolution of the value proposition. My uh, original retail mentor was a. Uh uh, a large acquirer of retail chains, right? So we built this 4,000-store chain, mostly through acquisitions. And his number one guideline for recognizing a healthy retailer to acquire is you had to be simultaneously closing and opening stores. Mm, sure. Because if you were just opening stores, you were like just chasing comps and trying to appease the market. Um, and you undoubtedly opened stores in the past in markets where the demographics have shifted and things like that. And so he, he viewed that churn as a, a, a strong indicator of a, a smart retailer. I think, that's, I think that's a great perspective. Yeah. So back to the point I said earlier about the value proposition that matters to the customer is moving faster now, and it's fueled by more options than ever. So we have to begin to operate in this environment where 
what matters to the customer is changing at an extremely rapid rate. And that includes geographically where to be, what assortment to offer, uh, you know, what, what messaging to offer, you know, how to think about promotions. All of those things are moving incredibly quickly. Um, and I put all those things into the same bucket of like, we have to build retail organizations that have this incredible level of responsiveness that we've never had to build before. And that's because the consumer's changing at that pace. What are, what are some tools retailers can use to do that? Like, you know, so some of these guys have been around for a hundred years and now you're saying appliances today, athleisure wear tomorrow, back to appliances. How, how do they become that nimble? So uh, specifically to that question, a lot of this is all about data analytics. Um, and you know, you guys know as well as I do that most retailers, if you think about data analytics, uh, about what good looks like, most retailers are still on that journey. Okay, they're still on this journey. Uh, and in many ways, they don't have the data set necessarily, you know, within their own four walls to answer all of those questions. But if you think about some of the ecosystem partners that now exist, uh, that, that clearly have incredible insight, uh, whether they're social players or, you know, some of the more technology oriented companies that have incredible levels of data, you know, we're encouraging our clients to think about ecosystems in order to access the right data so that we can build the analytics capability we need fueled by the real data, the right data, right? So take appliances for a minute. Um, you know, how do we identify the opportunity that appliances is going to be hot? How do we then position against that opportunity? Um, you know, in the traditional sense, you'd have merchants, you'd have, you know, planners that were sort of thinking about this, the, the buyers going out in the market. Um, what we'd suggest is data analytics helping to fuel the identification of opportunities so that you can then respond to those. Most retailers within their own data set wouldn't have the data that would say some new assortment category I'm not playing in is coming up to be ripe. However, the data does exist that says, boy, you know, appliances so you maybe is build an audience on a social network, kind of follow that audience, and then that would give you that input that you would need to see that suddenly product X is hot with that audience, kind of yeah. like, something like that. Yeah, but I'd argue partnering with the ecosystem partners as opposed to building it yourself, yeah. mm-hmm. right? So uh, and too many of our clients are, are, are attempting to build, you know, this four-walled garden themselves. And we're saying, no, don't, don't do that. Partner, leverage, build the relationships that allow you to have the insights that you can then react to. Uh, some of my clients, if I look at them uh, and you look at how much data do they really have around the customer, you think about the average customer, you know, how frequently does a customer go to a retail? Let's talk outside of grocery for a minute. You know, you're lucky if you have a customer that shops with you five times a year, seven times a year. Now, how much data do you really have about that customer? How much insight can you really derive that can drive your business? Meanwhile, if you go to one of the one of the partners that maybe works in the social, you know, area, uh, and you look at the amount of data that they have, how much insight do they have? It, it, it's night and day. It's not even close between the two. So the question is, how do you open that up? How do you build the right partnerships and relationships so that you can actually have the data? Because I, I don't care what data analytics stack you have. If you only have five transactions in there for, you know, for a particular customer, it's not going to tell you much. Cool. Interesting. What's sad, I totally agree with that, but it, it, what's sad is, very few retailers can aggregate and marshal all the insight from the five <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> much less the four hours a day right. that the social networks get them. Yeah. Right. They're, they're still working on cleaning up their email database, right? Exactly. Yeah. 
Cool. So those are some current trends. Have you seen, you've, you've been at NRF. Did you come yesterday? Yeah, yeah I, I have to. So I came yesterday, spent, I was in the keynotes yesterday morning. Right. I was out yesterday afternoon. You know, I was rocking. I was preparing right. for tonight's big rocking retail show. Yep. Uh, and then um, today I've been in a ton of meetings. So I actually haven't been out on the floor yet. So I got to apologize. I can't tell you what so I've no seen. no insights you've seen so I, far. I have no insights yet. Okay. Though I would tell you that the, the gentleman yesterday from um, Ashley Stewart, I don't know if you saw the keynote from the CEO from I was very impressed with him. I went out and downloaded the Harvard Business Review article to read about his uh, transformation that he's led from a cultural standpoint. I thought that was very good and insightful. I missed that. Thank you. You, uh, I don't, I don't want to gloss over this. You, you mentioned that you were rocking yesterday. Uh, we, we failed in the intro to mention that that uh, the the retail thing is just kind of a hobby, and that your actual profession is that you're a bass player, right? Uh, that's right. I'm, I'm, I've, so the last 20 years have just been waiting for my bass playing career to take off. Uh, and so this is sort of a side thing while I'm waiting for that to work out for me. Yeah, nice. waiting for our podcast career to take off. It's just kind of... Just wallowing around here. You know what you need? You need like some rock and killer yeah, like intro. Bass lines. Like some bass lines. Yeah, like uh, Seinfeld. That's what, like Seinfeld would have been nothing without the bass lines that were kicked yeah. off that. And that's why, you know, that's why that show skyrocketed. Yeah. yeah. I feel like Star Wars and Seinfeld had that in common. They were just like boring stories with good music. That's right. That's right. Hey, no. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we talked a little bit about this, but um, you also uh, talk a lot about singularity, kind of university stuff. Um, give listeners a little kind of flavor for that. We talked, we touched on the Moore's Law aspect of it, but uh, we didn't really talk about singularity. Um, and then that's an interesting platform to talk about some other future things. Um, we talked a little bit about VR. Any other kind of future technologies folks should be watching? Yeah, so first of all, Singularity University. If you're not familiar with Singularity University, they're a nonprofit organization out of the Bay Area. Uh, that's a collection of, of, uh, you know, leading experts in their various technologies. And there's, yeah, you know, the whole premise is, uh, the theory of singularity that Ray Kurzweil has written, uh, about the advancements of technology. It's all predicated on Moore's Law. So we talk about Moore's Law a lot, and singularity is really sort of rooted on that. The philosophy that Singularity has, uh, and by the way, we're, we're uh, partners with Singularity University. Um, the philosophy they have is there's a whole collection of technologies that are advancing at that rate. So it's easy to think about computing power, but um, biosciences are advancing at that same rate. Artificial intelligence is advancing at that same rate. Uh, a whole collection of technologies like 3D printing advancing at that Drones. same rate. Uh, drones. When when you when you begin to look at those and and not just think about them as standalone technologies, but the power when they begin to come together. So, for example, if you think about self driving cars, it's artificial intelligence, it's robotics, it's sensors. You know, a whole host of things sort of working together. And when they all advance to a certain rate, it makes some really cool things really possible that you know before didn't seem possible. So we spend time with Singularity, sort of bringing clients there. Um, they know the technologies deeply. What we, what we try and do is know the industry deeply. So if we bring clients there from retail, we'll, we'll partner the singularity experts who speak about you know, what they speak about. And then, you know, for example, I might join and talk about, okay, how is all this apply, you know, within retail? And then what we're trying to do is help and open up our clients' minds so that they can begin to act against some of these trends that maybe they were either only slightly familiar with or maybe unfamiliar with prior to, to sort of joining in. Um, so what's interesting about that is sort of looking at the technologies deeply about, this is what I love about it, like where does it really stand today? Yeah. So for example, brain-computer interface. 
we may talk about voice, um, but if you looked at where it really stands today, the leading scientists are actually implanting electrodes in people's brains and have interfaced computing power with the brain. So in some ways, it's hard for us to kind of get our head around it. And the other, when you see that, no, that's already happening today, it's possible. And, you know, here's a set of scientists who've done it, who share their results with it. It blows you away, Mm -hmm. right, to to start to think about where's this really going? How fast will we get there? Because it's so much farther ahead than you might read in the press. Or, or you might think when you go, oh, self-driving cars are coming. Well, they could have told us self-driving cars were coming. In fact, they were telling us self-driving cars were coming, you know, nine years ago. Yeah. It's when you show these things to people, um, when I first got like a MakerBot, some people like had a really visceral reaction to it. Like they, they were just, their mind was so blown. They had to like walk away and think about it for a while. And then uh, self-driving cars, uh, you know, I have a car that can do that. And it's like when you show people that, it just, they're just like, oh, my God, this is crazy. So it's pretty amazing to watch people's reaction to these things. I used to have a 72 <laughs> Pinto that was a self-driving car. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was recalled a, for that, I believe. It wasn't, it wasn't good at self-driving, <laughs> but periodically it would yeah. be self-driving. That's a whole other story, though. Don't Pintos explode if something gets <laughs> yeah, within five right. feet of them? That's right. They're just like, that's their defense mechanism. But I, I do like the, the visceral reaction that you get. Um, and like I, I always tell this story. I remember... Um, and this was probably, this story's probably 1995. I went to see my parents and told them, hey, um, um, you guys need a computer. I'm going to get a computer for the house. We're going to dial up. We're going to, this is like, yeah, we're gonna, I'm going to show you all. A, and my mom said to me at the time, what do we need a computer for? We, we don't need a Now, if you went to my parents' house today, there's two of them living together. They have two computers. They sit in one office back to back. So they're both sitting at their computers and they could spend their day you know, on the computer. So this idea about what do I, no, you know, that's the visceral reaction, right? Mm-hmm. So every time I hear whoever say, ah, oh, it's ridiculous. I sort of chuckle. And I think back to the story, you know, about my mom saying that's, I don't need a computer. So I think that will play itself out over time. Again, the question's how quickly we know self-driving cars are coming. Is that two years away, 10 years away, 50 until it's sort of significantly disrupting our life and our industries, et cetera. That's the big question. Yeah. And then the singularity itself is that point in time when we can upload ourselves into the cloud. To a, what is that, 2050? Is that kind of where <laughs> our Kurzweil pegs it, I think? Uh, yeah. So, so I, 2070, I think, 2050? I, I can't remember. I, I don't remember the exact date. Yeah. Roughly. Somewhere right? around there. Yeah. So, but the, the singularity is kind of this time where and this is the. This is the part where we sit around. You have to have a few drinks before you talk about this. Is that we're the, all in a simulation? Day, that's right. Yeah. At the point that uh, technology and biology converge, that's the singularity. Yeah. Because what's interesting at that point is, you know, we we uh, you know we ourselves today do not live on Moore's law, but at that point we will. Yeah. And that's the hard part to get your head around. Another, you sort of have to step back and go: Do I buy all this? Do I believe it? Do I do I understand it? And if so, then how do I back up and how do I think about today in a practical way? That figures out what the opportunities are. You know, or maybe our on. robot overlords don't let that happen, and they keep us as pets. That's always so, possible. Yeah. Maybe we're pets right now. You don't really. Yeah. It's a simulation. I, I don't really know. I think it's pretty clear that we are. I mean, I think if the the alien from space came down and watched us all following our dogs around and picking up their poop, they would pretty rapidly conclude who the the dominant species was. That's true. That's true. I know in my house. Look, I got two kids. I got a wife. I got two dogs. I am not the dominant species in my house. I can guarantee that. I, we may share that all in <laughs> uh, Listen, Casey, we're coming up on time, but uh, I'm curious if there's 
any you get to spend a lot of time thinking about the future it's kind of your full-time job uh your clients have these other full-time jobs and it's like sort of a side project to them is there any last advice you'd give people about preparing themselves for the future or being agile or so there's an element of sort of keeping your eyes open to what's really going on and that's that's the double clicking two three clicks below what the headlines will tell us um and I've got a, you know, we've got our, our last piece of research that we published is, is called the Retail Volatility Index. You could go download this, but the headline there is what we actually see from all of this is fragmentation of the industry. The industry is no longer consolidating. So the headline I try and tell people is we have to prepare for a time where to compete, you have to fragment yourself. And we'll hear terms like personalization. And I go, exactly. That's talking to different customers in different ways. But I believe that in order to compete in a highly fragmented market, we have to begin to think differently. And that's prepare to allow our business to be fragmented itself to compete with the fragmented nature of uh, the competition. Cool. And you've talked a lot about uh, these different reports. And I used to think, okay, uh, we're a small company. We could never get access to this kind of stuff. But you guys publish a lot of this out there. Where where should listeners go to to, to kind of find the, the thought leadership that you publish? Yeah, it's a great question. In fact, all of our research is all free. We make all of this research uh, available to uh, to our clients for free. We're we're attempting to try and move the market, right? Like help the market. We believe that you help the market that that our sufficient amount of work comes to us as we you know, do the research and help the market. But to your point, um, Deloitte.com is where you'll go. Uh, you can, there'll be a search box there. Or you can click on the, the retail specific uh, industry and you can get to our, our base of research. So someone search digital divide or fragmentation report, they'll find them. Yeah. And uh, then how about, um, should people follow you on Twitter? Do you kind of push out some links to some of this stuff? Yeah, sure thing. So I, I do a couple of things myself. So I, I certainly uh, tweet our information out. Uh, I also maintain a flip board that I call retail disrupted that I attempt to to sort of take the best articles from around the industry that I read that help to shape my own perspective about Retail Disrupted. Uh, and of course, I publish a lot on LinkedIn as well. Cool. So those What's your all. Twitter handle, just so folks know? Uh, it's at K-L-O-B-A-U-G-H. All right. And any place we can download your music? Uh, you have to search deep on Google for that one. All right. Well, that'll, that'll be a Easter egg hunt for, for our listeners. Uh, and with that, Casey, it has happened again. We have uh, used all our allotted time, but... Totally appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to talk with us and look forward to uh, uh, talking again. All right. Well, this has been a ton of fun. I really appreciate it. So we'll be listening to you on our way to St. Louis on our hockey trips. Awesome. Thanks, Casey. And thanks, NRF, for hosting us. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.